Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership. My name is Eric Anderson, the Deputy Director of this program, and I have the privilege of introducing our distinguished guest. Dr. Donna Shalala is one of the country's foremost scholars, teachers, and leaders. Her incredible career spans nearly 40 years. Committed to service from the beginning, Dr. Shalala served as one of the first Peace Corps volunteers in Iran from 1962 to 1964. She then, she then earned a PhD and held tenure at Columbia University, the City University of New York, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She served as president of Hunter College and the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In 1993, she took a hiatus from academic leadership to serve as the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Clinton administration for eight years, making her the longest serving HHS secretary in U.S. history. She returned to academia in 2001 when she became the president of the University of Miami, a job she held until 2015. At that time, she became the president of the Clinton Foundation, serving in that role until 2017. Dr. Shalala has garnered many awards, accolades, and honors. U.S. News and World Report named her one of America's best leaders in 2005. In 2008, President Bush presented her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2010, she received the Nelson Mandela Award for Health and Human Rights. And in 2011, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. This fall, she is serving as a Mentor Senior Leadership Fellow here at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Before I turn the session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Arnold Epstein, Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management. Please join me as we welcome Donna Shalala to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Secretary Shalala, it's great that you can join us here at the school to share your experience and leadership. We're really delighted to have you. It's really been a privilege. Thank um, you. I look forward to hearing about those lessons during the rest of the show today. I wonder if we might start with a personal note. Um, you're a public person and you've been in leader leadership in the public many years, but I'd like to hear the personal story of how you got started. There you were leaving high school, going to the Western College for Women. What did you aspire to then and what was it about those early years that enabled you to assume an important position in government and an important leadership of an educational institute, Thondra College, so quickly? Well, I, I don't think it was a grand plan. Um, let me assure you of that. Um, I was a high school, a junior high school a journalist, actually. My great love was journalism, and I thought I was going to be a foreign correspondent. So I edited my junior high school paper, my high school paper, my college paper, and it was my intention all, the t all throughout my career um, to actually be a journalist. Um, the fact that that didn't work out uh, has more to do with what was happening in the world than anything else. Uh, I, um, I went to college. I loved uh, being a college newspaper editor. I got into all sorts of trouble. In fact, there isn't anything this generation of students uh, can do that I haven't done myself at some point uh, in my career, which probably made me a better leader. <laughs> and, and, and more empathetic with what it means to be young in America. I worked on the Cleveland Press, the Scripps Howard newspaper. Uh, during the summers, I worked with some of the great journalists, community journalists, um, 
and when I graduated from college, it was the John Kennedy era, and I was really attracted to going to the Peace Corps. But I didn't quite make the decision that way, and I think I, I like to tell undergraduates that I applied to law school, I applied to journalism schools, I applied for some journalism jobs, um, and I applied to the Peace Corps, and I got acceptances on all sorts of things, including a PhD program in political science. And I sort of laid everything out on my bed, and I asked one question. Uh, here is the question. Which one would be the best adventure? Because I wanted an adventure when I finished college, and it was clearly the Peace Corps, so I went off to the Peace Corps. Um, and people ask me, well, you ended up, after the Peace Corps, going to graduate school. That was because my boyfriend was going to graduate school. I wasn't particularly interested in being a scholar. And I tagged along with him to Syracuse. I loved it. He hated it. He left. I stayed. And the rest is sort of history. I got a PhD. I had wonderful mentors at Syracuse. But when I graduated, I still wanted a journalism job. So I wrote to the New York Times. They didn't have a job. I wrote to the Washington Post. And the Post said, you know, go back to the Cleveland Press and work there for a while. I didn't want to go back to Cleveland. So my major professor got me a job in New York, actually at Columbia, and a joint appointment between Teachers College and the Graduate Faculty of Political Science with a great political scientist named Wally Sayre. And, you know, I just basically became an academic, but it was not, it was not because I was born and, and loved college that well, that much. In fact, I went to graduate school on probation. My undergraduate degree was not that strong. My grades weren't that strong because I spent all my time editing the student newspaper. So that's a very honest response. <laughs> Turned out very differently. How did you find yourself in government the first time? Um, it had to do with my doctoral dissertation. Um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the politics of municipal finance and basically on fiscal home rule. There was a constitutional convention in New York in 1967, and I was just starting my graduate work, and my major professor said, well, start writing your dissertation about the constitutional convention, but I was particularly interested in the financial relationships between states and cities. And there were a lot of con-cons going on across the country, so I wrote about that. When I went to New York, um, in the early 70s, for the first time they had a Democratic governor that was elected, and uh, he needed some help putting his budget together. It was Hugh Carey, and it was 1974. And um, he called around, or his staff people called around the state to find out who could help him put together the budget, because they had had Nelson Rockefeller for so many years that all the academics that were expert on the budget had worked for the Republicans. So, so the Republican um, budget director of the state had had me in class. And he said, well, listen, there's this young academic in New York. Why don't you go get her? She's a Democrat. And um, so Hugh Carey invited me to come help put the budget together. And he offered me the job as budget director. I didn't have tenure yet. I mean, it was a dumb idea. I said no. Uh, but I had a lot of fun uh, with Carey and his people uh, putting together the budget. And so I went back to Columbia. And in 1975, the governor actually called me on the phone, and he said, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, I have a Guggenheim in the fall, so I'm going to start writing. And he said, well, I need you for the summer. He said, I think New York City's going to go bankrupt, and I need someone who actually understands what the problem is, and I'm appointing all these investment bankers. It was going to be a committee called Big Mac, 
and um, it was the Municipal Assistance Corporation, chaired by Felix Roatten, one of the great investment bankers uh, in the world. He was at Lazar. It had all these investment bankers on it. He said, they're going to think I put you on the committee because you're a woman. You're the only one that knows the subject matter. So you get to be on the committee. And uh, that actually launched my public career, even though I knew a lot of the politicians in New York um, and knew them over, over the years. Uh, but it launched a public career because I sat on that commission that solved the New York City fiscal uh, crisis. By 77, Jimmy Carter had gotten elected. He was looking for women for the new administration. I had a great friend who was offered um, the policy job at HUD and um, she didn't want to take it, so she recommended me. And Stu Eisenstadt, who was the uh, head of domestic policy at the time, wanted me to come and do domestic policy uh, at the White House, but I took the assistant secretary's job. Came back to New York to be president of Hunter. Wow. So um, it's a, you know, and some of these things just showed up with well, a phone call from someone. A lot of it's networking and where you were at the time. But I basically, was thinking like an academic, and I was getting pulled out to do these other kinds of jobs. So that's quite a, sort of a quick story. The old saw is when you find someone who is in the right place at the right time, if you check carefully, they were at seven places at that time. Yeah. And you <laughs> seem like true. that kind of person. But let me change the direction a little bit here, because at the Chan School, our first and second and third priority is really health. Mm -hmm. And you were the Secretary of Health and Human Services exactly. for eight years in the Clinton administration. Right. Um, you saw the, the attempted passage of the Health Security Act, health, for, health care reform, important work on cigarettes and privacy. So you've really been there. I wonder if you could look back now and think in, about the Health Security Act for the moment. Was that a case where we just didn't have the consensus in the country for expansion? Or was there an opportunity missed? When you look back upon it, what are the lessons you draw, and that maybe even President Obama may have drawn, that enabled him to be more successful as well? You know, we committed some mistakes that we sort of knew ahead of time. The experts around the table with the president said to him initially, you really ought to go to Congress, lay out your principles, let write the bill with Congress. Um, he made a decision he wanted to do it in-house, but the lessons, the lessons were always there consensus in the country about is this the proper role of government. When we did Social Security and Medicare, there was not a private sector alternative, even though there had been some experimentation. And you had powerful presidents that could, even though Roosevelt really wanted health care too, um, but in the case of Lyndon Johnson, who could put the politics together for you. But you didn't have the private sector. You had the AMA saying socialized medicine but you didn't have the private sector that wanted to fulfill the role without deep government subsidies. Um, and you weren't affected, you were affecting a specific part of the population that was carefully defined. Uh, we tried to take on the whole ball of wax. And even the lesson today about universal health care is a lesson you, you better be careful because people are, are for it until they find out how it affects them and their own insurance. So um, there are a lot of lessons. Secrecy you don't want to do, the stakeholders you have to buy off, and there are powerful stakeholders in healthcare. You have to have some kind of consensus that this is a particular role of the federal government. After all, presidential campaigns are only fought over that. What's the role of the federal government? 
And finally, um, you've got to be able to explain it in a pretty careful way. And if it's complex, you're going to do something that in political science we know all about. You're going to build a negative coalition. Everybody's going to have some objection to some piece of your plan. And they're going to get together with the other group that objects to some piece of your plan. And they're going to put a negative coalition together, and then you don't have a chance. Um, you saw a little of that in the recent debates. You'll see a lot of it in the tax plan Coming because multiple constituencies. <clears throat> um, the consensus is important, but it's more than that. And um, even universal health care today, when you start, uh, the polls actually show, when you start asking, telling people it's going to affect their health insurance as opposed to other people's health insurance, whoa, <laughs> I like my health insurance. When people uh, have said to me, well, what do you think of Medicare for all? And I said, I got better health insurance than Medicare. It was President Obama's famous line. Yeah. You'll never have to change your health insurance. Yeah. Every president does that. <laughs> and, uh, and whoever is standing next to them ought to stop them immediately. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do that. Are there other parts of your administration in, as Secretary of Health and Human Services that stand out to you as being particularly important? Well, it could be the most important one was doubling the NIH budget. It could be that building that bipartisan coalition, which ushered in a golden age for biomedical research, was far more significant. I actually said to President Clinton, this will be your legacy. It will be the outcomes that come out of this long-term investment and building, a building up a generation of scientists. I once said to him that, um, you know, you just can't go up and down in the NIH budget because young people are going to make commitments to scientific careers. And you, you have to put that together. And we did it with the Republicans. They think they did it with us, but we did it with them. Um, I thought that was very significant. I think the appointment of Harold Varmus, the Nobel laureate, as head of NIH helped that along and changed uh, and certainly made more rigorous the whole NIH a process at the time so we could so that we could spend the money appropriately. I think the appointment of Francis Collins, which was probably my first appointment because the NIH director at the time said he's not going to take the job. I wasn't even confirmed yet unless you get on the phone and convince him that uh, that you're really committed to the human genome project. So that's that's unusual because most people would look at what we did with children's health insurance or the tobacco or the privacy regs or immunization but but in the long run it was probably that investment in NIH it's great to hear about your healthcare experience i'd also like to hear some about generic leadership issues like for example um, it says the buck stops here for a leader which is true but leaders aren't in a vacuum, they usually work with teams, and it takes a team to carry out, to conceptualize, and often to implement a vision. Mm -hmm. um, what's been your experience? What are the lessons you have for how you identify team members, how you empower them, how you get them to work together towards a common goal? Now, um, if you're in government, you have to be extremely careful who you hire and who's on your team. It's, you don't have any control of the senior civil servants and you have to integrate them into your team, and you make a mistake if you don't integrate them. I never had a meeting with just political appointees. I wouldn't have thought about doing that because I would have gotten blindsided one way or another, not because the civil service was gonna undercut me, but because I wouldn't get the, all the information I needed to make a decision. 
my decision-making meetings were huge, a very large table. During the summer, I told them to bring in the interns as well. Um, and, I, and I systematically went around the room. Now, a lot of decisions were already made. It was usually the big decisions in which the secretary, or there was controversy about the decision, people wanted to argue their case. In my view, everyone in the department that was a senior, part of the senior leadership got to participate in every decision. They might not be interested in every decision, but they got invited, and they usually sent a representative. But in general, the senior people showed up themselves because they, we didn't have these meetings very often, but when we did, they were full-fledged conversations about very important policy decisions. So my first rule was that I never wanted to be snookered. I didn't, they had to give me all the information. They could not hide information from me, either the pro or the con. Um, uh, and the second one, I wanted to understand the principles under which we were making this decision. And in addition to the stakeholders and the politics. So it's not that the meetings went on so long because they usually got themselves very organized and gave me paper uh, that I could read and prepare for, but the discussion was absolutely critical. We didn't start the privacy regs without laying out principles. And the fundamental principle for HIPAA was healthcare information should be only used for healthcare purposes. We wrote the regs out of that principle. One of the reasons they survived very well was because they were built on solid bipartisan bipartisan principles. We also followed the congressional debate. The Congress couldn't get their act together to make a final decision, but we followed both the Republican and the uh, Democratic debates and the hearings extremely carefully. In that case, we weren't an activist government. We were sticking to very careful and very conscious um, rules of the game to try to build consensus on those privacy regs with both the industry, with Congress, um, with everyone that was going to be affected by those regs. In the case of tobacco, we were clearly activists. We were very anxious to stop the tobacco companies from recruiting kids to smoke. And uh, Janet Reno warned me that we would lose this Supreme Court cases, and frankly, I didn't care because it was part of an overall strategy uh, to work with the governors and with nonprofit groups um, to make the case that the tobacco companies um, had, uh, had misled the public and were recruiting kids to smoke. Our data showed that if we stopped kids from smoking before they were 18, they would never smoke. So it was a combination of a major public health campaign, a major public health campaign with outside groups and a very targeted legal campaign uh, with a real strategy with state and local governments um, to really hide cigarettes from kids and to make sure they didn't have access to them. And college students all across the country made their campuses uh, tobacco-free because as kids, they got these messages. It was probably the most successful public health campaign of our generation. Um, but we hit it from every direction. And we knew exactly what we were doing, and we took some risks in the process. It was complicated, because remember, Democratic Democrats had worked with Philip Morris and with other tobacco companies for years. They funded cultural events in African-American communities. Um, there were White House 
people who had worked for tobacco uh, for uh, the tobacco companies as lobbyists. But in this case, uh, we knew exactly where the president and the vice president were. I hear the voice of a seasoned policymaker. Yeah, uh, what, what, what <laughs> that's I'm, why you invited me, right? I, I, <laughs> indeed. You know, now now knowing the Euro, a would-be journalist, but didn't make do that. Trained political scientist, and then you find yourself leading uh, large, complex organizations. Tell me a little about the training. You didn't do an MBA. Um, did you read every management book you could find? Did you no, get coaches? Remember, How did you go about it? I got it? my PhD at Syracuse, which was the great center of public administration uh, at the time. So I got to study, even though I didn't get a degree in public administration, I studied with one some of the best uh, public administration people in the country and, um, and sat in on lectures and, and heard them talk about management. Um, so I had some feel for the literature. There's just no question about that. But um, when I went to HUD in the 1970s, Pat Harris, the Patricia Roberts Harris, who eventually went to HHS, that's another story, but um, gave me more and more management responsibility. She had me uh, chairing executive management groups. She just, she consciously uh, thought I had talent for management and I watched not only her, but I watched senior civil servants in the department. I got to know the IG, for example, and watched the way they interacted. Um, so it started there and then I got sort of thrown into Hunter and I learned about, uh, about running a 24,000 student uh, campus. But I, I, I knew the principles, I knew how to build teams. Um, I had done that uh, uh, most of my life and um, I knew the politics. I knew enough about the politics. Um, but all of this built up over time. Running HHS was a piece of cake after running a major research <laughs> university. There, it's not significantly different. Think about the health and human services array. You've got FDA, you've got the CDC, you've got the NIH. Um, it's sort of like having uh, the dean of the law school, the dean of the medical school, different personalities, different cultures for each of those agencies, including public health. Um, uh, different politics around each one. So when you run a university, you're not in control because you have different power centers. I had more control at HHS than I did in any research university I ever ran. But conceptually, it wasn't very different than running a major research university. I just, I just actually had more authority uh, in government. Um, it was a little bit more hierarchical than it was running a, a research university. But conceptually, I understood the multiple cultures. I understood how to deal with, um, with star deans. So, you know, I could deal with the pharmacists and, you know, the, the head of the FDA, David Kessler. Everybody said these people were difficult. They had never been in a university <laughs> uh, before, so. I, I can see how they're similar. Can, I, I'm intrigued then by your most recent posting, which is the Clinton Foundation. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how that differed? Certainly its global focus is a little different. Right. That, but the personalities are surely different. Yeah. Well, but I'm a Clintonite. So, um, uh, First of all, it was a short-term assignment. Uh, the, the Clinton family asked me to come in during the course of the campaign. I actually wanted to work on the campaign, and um, they really wanted me to come. They didn't have a leader for the foundation. They knew it was gonna be under attack. They actually had some things they wanted to get done 
in the foundation and they thought my skill set would fit and they trusted me. Um, and while the campaign was swirling around, they needed someone that they could trust. With and good I, reason. And I brought in um, a deputy that would eventually uh, take over. So that was a 15-month assignment that was absolutely fascinating because they do wonderful work, wonderful work. And we got a chance to streamline some things. The president doesn't like overhead. So we had a chance to streamline um, without changing the substance of the programs to do some things that that he wanted to get done. But it was a one-off for me. I've never been interested in running a foundation. First of all, they're not complex and messy enough for someone like me. <laughs> so for someone like you who's gone through multiple different organizations and a lot of complexity, can you reflect back on some of the things you're most proud of, either because of their importance or because you were able to overcome some particular challenges that were staunch? You know, it's interesting. Um, my favorite job of all time was being a Peace Corps volunteer. I think I was better at that than I was at anything else in my career. Because it, it, it wasn't just the complexity. It was, I was young, I was fearless. I didn't have any constraints other than Muslim culture. You know, I was living in a mud village in, in southern Iran. So I learned, I, I developed self-confidence out of that uh, experience. There are a lot of things I'm very proud of. Thousands of students who graduated successfully and went on to successful uh, careers. I'm very proud of the work that I've done in each of the universities that I've been at because I made them more caring, more responsive. Um, I made them better. I mean, by any metrics, uh, they improved in the rankings, but they also uh, were more successful in relationship uh, to their students. Um, and each one needed a different strategy. Um, someone asked me the other day, why don't I take people with me when I go from one place to another? I never have, because you worry more about them. And I'm, I took a bunch of anthropology courses while I was at Syracuse. I'm a chameleon. I've got to learn the culture of an institution uh, before I start moving or making suggestions or gathering people around. So. Each of the institutions that I've led, whether it's been HHS or my job at HUD or, or Hunter or Wisconsin uh, or Miami, required different strategies. I wonder, getting particular, I, I'm sure our students are thinking, just like healthcare, what about me? Mm -hmm. And that's their question. So what advice might you offer them about any kind of particular skills they need to build, any kind of coursework they need to take? any kind of environments they should expose themselves to? Mm -hmm. What today would you say to them? I think they have to learn a lot about people um, and about their classmates. I met with, I had breakfast with some students this morning and I said, boy, this is an opportunity because of the diversity of the student body here in terms of not just race or gender, it's, it's their backgrounds are so different that you can learn more from people uh, than you can from anything else so that, um, it's not that you have to be a people person, you just have to understand people's lives. Around my table, my decision-making table um, at HHS were people of different backgrounds and not just race, different income backgrounds. One of the agency heads had rickets as a child. I mean, you've gotta have people that grew up in poverty. If you're running a place like HHS, you can't hire people from 
upper middle class that went to Ivy League institutions and expect to make policy that's sensitive. Even though you can read the literature and expect people to be sensitive, you need people around the table that say, wait a minute, let's talk really about people's lives. Let's talk about whether what you think of is a $5 copayment for Medicaid uh, is okay if you're middle class, but if you're poor and you're working on a paycheck, that price sensitivity will keep people from, from going to the doctor. I mean, you've got to have a feel for that, uh, that kind of thing. So I think getting to know people, getting to know their life stories turns out to be as important. And, and the second thing is, when I went to graduate school, they let me loose to take uh, courses in other disciplines. I did participant observation in anthropology. I sat and looked at a gas station for a whole semester. <laughs> and uh, it turned out it was a bookie joint. <laughs> How had, long did it take you to figure that out? I didn't. My professor did. I kept writing things out. He said, there's not that many people that go in and out of the gas station. There's got to be something else going in. So I actually walked in. <laughs> but. You know, it was, it was studying urban sociology and urban geography. I wanted to be an urbanist uh, at the time, and urban anthropology, and, uh, and doing global health, actually. With some, uh, the anthropologists were, were studying global health issues. That, gave me, that interdisciplinary training uh, really set me up. That's the good public health training is exactly that. You approach it from different disciplines, and you think, and, and that, that prepares you not for the specifics that you're going to deal with, but it gives you context. I've always said to people, you've got to have context to absorb this information and, and be able to organize it in a way so you can make decisions. I've got time for just one brief question at this point, and it's really thinking about um, maybe regrets in a sense. Can you think of any part in your career where you encountered a setback, even one that you eventually succeeded over, that gave you some important lessons to take away from it? Oh, it has to be health care in the Clinton administration. And Boy, I knew better. <laughs> um, but, you know, we were a little overwhelmed. It was uh, pretty well organized by the time we got started in terms of what direction we were going to take. Um, I regret um, that probably Pat Moynihan kept saying, do welfare first because you've got welfare organized and then do health care. When I think back on it, maybe that would have given us a little distance to figure out the politics uh, in Washington at the same time. Um, Teddy Kennedy said something very important to me. He said he wished he had signed on for the Nixon plan because it's very similar to what Obama did, with a little more flexibility for Medicaid. But, but at the time, he thought he could do better. And uh, he said, boy, if we had signed on for that, it would have changed our world as we know it in terms of coverage and quality and cost and, and all that. Um, it's really good to hear your lessons. I'm going to hand off for the next part of the show. Thank you very much. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me slash voices. We encourage you to share voices in leadership.